Uh, it's great to dive in. We've been in James. James is a book that's in your New Testament. If you have a Bible, go to James chapter 5. We are in the final chapter. We're uh, descending. We're landing the plane. Uh, it's been a great three-month walkthrough. We'll finish James next Sunday before we hit Good Friday and Easter. Um, but James is a, a really honest book, and James has been great as we've been learning. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ. If you're new to Christianity, new to the Scriptures, um, the, Jesus did have other siblings. He was born of a virgin supernaturally miraculously by God through the Holy Spirit, but then you have uh, actually other siblings that we believe Joseph and Mary, which church history and even the scriptures will show he had other family members. And so um, James was one of those, and he grew up seeing Jesus, uh, hearing Jesus, hearing him teach, seeing him walk. And uh, if you read the scriptures, it's interesting because he uh, really believes his brother's just a lunatic. Uh, there's one point in the, in the gospels where they just want to bring him all in the house because he's claiming to be God. And they're going, man, our, our, our brother's gone on the crazy train. And so uh, what happens is he goes from uh, fright to fight. He, he first was fearful that he was saying things that were untrue, and then the resurrection, he meets Jesus, and he is totally transformed, and he basically becomes one of the leaders for the movement of the early church. He becomes a pillar of the faith, Paul calls him in Galatians 2, and he ends up ultimately being martyred, thrown off uh, the Temple Mount, and he lands, and he doesn't die, and he still won't recant that he believes that his brother was actually God in flesh and can rescue sinners back to God the Father, and so they bash his skull in. So uh, if you're ever wondering, this is isn't some uh, cute, clever, hey, uh, it makes sense he's family, he would go uh, for his brother Jesus. No, he uh, endured suffering, endured hardship uh, for the sake of the message of this gospel. So as he writes here, um, he's actually landing the plane where he started. He's, he's going to take a full circle and get back to trials and suffering. Uh, and it's very interesting how he does this. Now, this is why this is important. When, when uh, first century Christians used to gather, or they would receive letters actually after these were inspired and written. Um, these churches that were planted, and, and Paul would send letters and all these different things, they, they wouldn't just kind of take a, a text and stop, and then next Sunday get back together. Um, they would read the whole letter. They would, they would sit there and see its fullness. They would open up, say, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul, or from Peter, or from John. And so they would actually read these letters in its fullness. And so uh, this is why it's important to walk through books of the Bible so you don't do bad Bible studies. So here, James. If they were reading this, they would remember very quickly just moments before that he had just addressed them in their trials. Uh, and what we saw was, this was the first week we opened up the, the Bible together, we saw that um, trials are not a possibility, they're a certainty. Uh, right? We live in a fractured, fallen world. So uh, none of us are going to escape suffering, pain, plight to some degree. Um, if you do, you're not a human. So um, we learned that very quickly early on. And so uh, James writes this to scattered, suffering Christians, early Jewish Christians who were trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. They're being scattered, running from their homes, from the dispersion. And he's saying, hey, uh, count it joy in your trials. Right? We saw that was otherworldly in its language, and we saw why. And James is going to continue to show that we have patience in these trials. We have patience in this suffering. So uh, here's what we can really see as James lands the plane where he began this entire letter. Um, he starts out in chapter one saying, trials are not a possibility, they are a certainty, and then he reminds you that they're producing this depth. Remember, it's he wa God wants you to be mature, not lacking in anything, right? He's, he loves you, he's for you, and you can ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials. He, he gives generously, don't be a double-minded man. And then he goes on and shows you, hey, uh, in your, these trials, when you're suffering, 
suffering, you're going to be tempted to believe that God is not good. You're going to be tempted to believe that God has abandoned you, that he isn't a good father who gives good gifts to his children, that he has somehow left his promise to you. And then we see that that's why you've got to be a doer of the word. You've got to believe these promises. You've got to hold tight to what God has said. And then he moves on and says, and you're, all the while you're going to be struggling with your partial prejudiced racist heart uh, because you live in a, a broken system with broken hearts, broken minds. Only God can repair. Remember, the gospel is the most impartial message that exists, right? And then he rolls into, hey, that's why you're going to have to have wisdom from above, not wisdom below. And watch your mouth. It reveals what your heart is as you're interacting with brothers and sisters. Man, the heart is going to reveal itself. This is why quarrels and jealousy is going to be produced among you. And then ultimately gets to, yeah, oh, and by the way, uh, the rich are going to defraud you and hoard for themselves. You're going to be oppressed. And then he gives you the two words that you hate to hear. Verse 7, be patient. James chapter 5, verse 7, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Are you kidding me, James? Be patient? The last thing. How many of us are alive and impatient? That's everybody. Okay, so if you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar, right? Okay, so, so we're all alive, or we're all impatient, or we're both. Okay, so this is true of anyone. No one in this room can say, oh, man, I'm just super patient. Man, on the, on the grid that God gave me, I'm crushing that one. No, no, no. We are all perpetually aggravated. That's just how we live, man. The internet's too slow. drive through fast food restaurants aren't quick enough for us. Right, our phones, man. I mean, if it takes more than a millisecond for your Facebook to refresh or someone to like it, then you go crazy. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. I will post something. People will like it before I even press post. I'm like, how is it possible that you guys, are you in my like backyard, in my living room? It's just freaky. I mean, we live in this just perpetually, I gotta, I gotta do stuff. We're just, we're nuts. We're insane. We are so impatient. Stuff has to happen instantaneously. And if it doesn't, we shake our fist at the heavens or we get super aggressive towards our neighbor. Uh, and Paul's gonna show us how patience, there are great benefits in patience and how ultimately Jesus has been ultimately patient with us, which is why we can be patient people. So here he says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He says, be patient. Now he's bringing them back to, you're in trials, you're suffering, you're going through difficulty, life is not stable. But be patient and endure. And he gives the primary reason you can be patient. He says, Jesus will return. Now, now what he's saying is, don't ever let that leave your mind. Right? You're, you're headed somewhere. You're, you're moving somewhere. There, there's an eternal shoreline that you're ultimately going to arrive at for the Christian that is no tear, no pain, no anxious thoughts, no lust, lustful perversions, no, no prejudice, no fracture, no folly, full justice. Don't, don't forget you're going that way. Now listen, he heard his older brother talk about this all the time. I mean, we walked through Luke together, the Gospel of Luke. We saw Jesus talk about his return as a consistent subject. That the Lord's at hand. He could return at any moment, right? He kind of gave that unbelievably interesting, I'm going to the cross, but then there's going to be a second coming. It's going to be like a thief in the night. You're not even going to be prepared for it. So here he's showing us in some way um, the return of Christ brings about patience for us. It helps us in our suffering. It helps us in our difficulty. Um, now, this is where our hope ultimately lies, does it not? I mean, I mean think about this. Um, 
as you look across the landscape, and I mean globally, I don't mean just in America. I mean, that's, that's enough homework. But, but look just across the landscape globally as we see poverty and death and evil and sickness and injustice and sin and, and perversion. We see all of this across the landscape globally. Listen, we, we absolutely should be committed to doing what Christ has asked, caring for the vulnerable and the sick and, and the outcast. We should be aggressively committed to those things. But ultimately, none of those things will be a solution. This side of glory, right? I mean, we could write million-dollar checks tomorrow to every parachurch organization that will help cure world hunger, but ultimately, there's still going to be people hungry. So is not one of the most peaceful things that the real solution to all of this, I'm not saying it denies or says we should not go and be. We absolutely go and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. But is this not the most safest, most settled place to rest? Come, Lord Jesus. Like that's when it'll be finalized, right? That's when every relationship will be reconciled, every tear will be wiped, every wrong will be righted, right? I mean, is this, is this not where our hope ultimately lies? I mean, for those of you, I mean, how many times do we say, man, come Lord Jesus, as we see the pangs of death, the pangs of life? The ultimate solution is Jesus' return. Now, um, see, I cannot think about the return of Jesus Christ and deafen my ears to the reality before me, right? Like, I can hide myself. I can buffer myself, right? We talked about this last week, how we use wealth as a buffer from our fears and anxiousness, right? And, and so we can do it, man. We can, we can protect ourselves. We can get in gated communities, and we can set up our home like Disneyland, and we can say, hey, let's just, let's just satisfy ourselves to death with the world. Let's, let's just ignore what's really happening, ignore sin, ignore fracture. Let's not live on mission. Let's not give our lives for the kingdom, man. Let's just be cuddly and cozy all together and, and just not believe it's happening. Listen, you will not think about the return of Jesus Christ the more self-indulgent you are. Like, you won't grow in anticipation for that if you surround yourself and indulge yourself and look to satisfy yourself with the here and now, right? And that's why James is showing the persecuted Christian is the one who anticipates his return. The one who's suffering justly for Jesus, he's the one who anticipates the return of Jesus Christ. The one who lives self-indulgent, lives a safe life, is one who doesn't really want to follow Jesus, just believe in Jesus to get fire insurance. Yeah, that person, man, it just dwindles their interest in Jesus returning. We talked about this last week, right? I mean, we, we try to make ourselves satisfied here. <laughs> like, like 2 Corinthians 5 says we're a tent that's, that's naked, wanting to be clothed with our eternal dwelling, and yet uh, we like to do the opposite. And so James is saying, no, something's wrong when you are trying to be satisfied here and think you are apart from him. And so he's showing us, man, that return of Jesus Christ gives us patience because he's coming, he'll make all wrongs right. But just as we need patience for his return, there's patience in the waiting. He's showing this amazing kind of parallel truth here that, okay, as you're patient, you're suffering, knowing that, that Jesus is returning, he's coming to get his kids, it'll all be one day set straight. He also wants to do things in the in-between. He wants to work in you. He has not forgotten you. Look at what he, he gives this example of the farmer here. And he encourages them with this illustration. He says, um, life is like farming, right? You, you till the ground, you plant the seed, you, you get it ready, and then what happens? All you can do is wait then till it rains. Now in Palestine, the, the early season and late season he's talking about is, is October and then like January. So you had four or five months where you couldn't do anything to make the crops grow. You couldn't do anything to see fruitfulness. 
You just had to wait and trust that when the rain came, then what would be produced is what is supposed to be produced. And James is showing us that everything grows according to its season, and you and I are like this spiritually. But we like to rush fruitfulness, right? Can't you be done with this suffering, done with this trial, right? I mean, aren't you finished kind of taking me through this Red Sea experience? And he's going, no, 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 you can't rush fruitfulness. It's a process. See, we want instantaneous intimacy with God, right? Do we not? I mean, this is why a chapter ago in James 4 where he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We like to read that and think, I sit down and read one verse from my Bible. I picked it up in 17 years, but I'll read one text. Thank you, Jesus. Help me believe it. Go to work, and I'm all of a sudden godly, right? I mean, I'm just transformed, right? I am the leading Christian evangelist. I mean, it's a cultivated intimacy. This is so important. We don't even want patience in our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity. That's why I've said over and over and over, please do not look at men and women who you see as giants of the faith and think that tomorrow you'll be like them. You have to see the, just a pathway behind them, years and years of struggle and toil and slow maturing. Bob will constantly say that, man. This is why he's saying you can't get something in, out of season that should be in season. So I remember this when I got married. Um, it was like you can't get peaches in winter, and I always wanted peaches. That's not in season for them. There's a waiting period, right? So the problem is we don't like waiting for it to rain. None of us like it. We hate waiting for it to rain. We want God to bring about the fruitfulness instantaneously. He's saying, be patient. This goes back to chapter one. He's doing something in you. He has not abandoned you. Your losses are not endless. Like your suffering is not pointless. He is at work in this. You can trust the good father who has you and cares for you. That's what James is showing them here. He's showing that, it's showing that it's a process, and he's reminding us of all of these things, that trials are not, never punitive. They're always formative. I always say that. It's not punishment for the man or woman that, that is in Christ. It's always formative. He's trying to form you and shape you more to the image of Jesus. That's his primary goal for you. I don't know what you've been taught growing up. I don't know what people have said to you, but his primary goal is not for you to be happy. And that's why some of us have this weird thing where we, we just love Christianity for a while and then just bail on it. It's because bad doctrine and bad teaching. So you think, well, God promised me all these things, and so I should get these things. And as soon as he doesn't, somehow you're God now. You're on the throne. You get to tell him how the universe works, and you get angry, bitter, resentful, and frustrated. And he's showing us, man, no, it's a process. And he's showing, man, these trials are formative. God is doing something in you that is necessary for you. It's beautiful. You want to be complete, lacking in nothing. Chapter 1, verse 5. I'm breaking down your idolatry. I'm building up your confidence in me. See, often when storms hit, you got like four responses. James wants faith. I trust him. Uh, you're, usually, as we're in there, it's either fright. I'm scared to death. This thing is overtaking me. Flight. I'm just going to run from him, do whatever I want. Um, or we have this kind of fight. I'll just be tough and stick it out through my own aggression and my own self-esteem. And he wants faith. No, I'll trust him. And he's got me. He's not letting go of me. There's patience that's being worked out. It's necessary. This timetable is different from what I see. God stands outside of time. He's not in your time box. He made time. So the future is not just a place that he knows, but a place that he stands. And just waiting, seeing his kids being shaped more like him. See, the entire scriptures are going to say 
and lay before you this amazing reality that, that you're being like prepared as a bride for the wedding day. Right, that there's this day coming where, where the bridegroom Jesus returns and he's just preparing you in the here and now, the already not yet. He's getting you ready. And that day's gonna be so sweet. He's preparing this day for when he returns. So James is reminding us going, this suffering, this difficulty will make our wedding day that much more sweet. You know, uh, it's amazing if you look at history. You look at how the Bible separates itself. You can just see it in weddings. Out of the gate, human history starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve. He makes a wedding covenant with Israel, his people, which foreshadows the wedding covenant he'll make with his church. Jesus incarnates, enters human history. The first miracle he does is at a wedding. Turns water into wine. Right, then he lives, dies, rises. Ultimately, why? To become our bridegroom for his bride, which is the church. And then it ultimately ends in Revelation 19 where we have the wedding supper with the Lamb. Right, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what he wants us to see, that there is joy in this. Even though there is pain, there is growth, there is longing, and ultimately he will have us. Be patient, James says. God is preparing you. There is worth in the waiting. And then he says this in verse 8. You also be patient. He's just reiterating it. In case you didn't hear him the first time. Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This, this word, uh, establish your hearts, it's the same word in Luke 9 we, when we studied Luke, how Jesus turned his face and he was resolute to set it towards Jerusalem, right? He knew his mission. He knew where he was going. He knew suffering was before him, but he said, I'm going to do it. I trust the Father's heart. It, it's this firmness. It's this, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm, I'm trusting what he's doing in me. It's this understanding of even though in the face of death we are okay. Why? He says the Lord is at hand. The Lord's returning. Every time I see this phrase, the Lord is at hand, and it's a few other places. See it in Philippians 4, right? In the same thing, it's interesting, right? He says rejoice, rejoice. Why? The Lord is at hand. He's near. Um, I always think about Matthew 25, and a lot of different texts with like, just to give us images of this return of Jesus, how he's not gonna come like a little infant the first time, or this, this meek right, servant, but a conquering hero on a white horse, right? In Matthew 25, if you've read that text before, you know it's the one where, where he comes in all of his glory with all of his angels, and it says that he starts, uh, he gets all the nations together, and he just starts separating like sheep and goats, and he looks at the ones on his left, and he says, oh, you, you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't make much of me, you were self-indulgent, self-absorbed, God of your own life, here's eternal fire, go there. Uh, and then he says, oh, you on my right, you saw me and you clothed me, you fed me when I was hungry, you made much of me, you lived for my glory and not your glory, welcome into eternal life. But, but there's something, yeah, woo, someone got it, at least there's one pulse in the room. But verse 31, look at what he says here. He says, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will be gathered all the nations and will separate people one from another as a shepherd separated the sheep from the goats. I mean, I mean have you ever thought about this scene? Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Okay, First, just think about Jesus in all his glory returning. 
Your mind can't handle that. It's, it's cool that you're trying and you're trying to draw a picture in your head, but man, it's, it's, it's nothing like you've ever seen. I mean, just that alone, Jesus in his white, hot glory returning. And then he says, oh, by the way, all his angels are with him. Okay, if you go to Revelation 5, I think it is, you'll see it's like 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. Try. Try. You haven't seen 100 million of anything right? I mean, a hundred million angels filling every spot of blue you can see with Jesus in all his glory coming down, sits on his throne, and just starts separating all the nations, those who knew him and those who did not know him. You know what James is saying here? He goes, man, you think anything else is going to matter in that moment? Man, you think it's going to matter how famous you were or what race you were? or how big your church was? I mean, you think it's got, your trials are really gonna matter in that moment? In the sense of, man, all you're gonna be saying is my God's back for me. My God has me, my God loves me. Man, I've been longing for this day. I mean, he's saying something huge here. He's saying the Lord is at hand. So be patient, that day's coming. Be patient. It won't be long now. Be patient in your difficulty. Be patient in your suffering. Be patient in your weariness. Be patient in your anxious nights. Man, be patient through the pangs of life. That day's coming. And it can't come soon enough, but it's coming. He's going to take us home. I mean, imagine if there was no Jesus. Imagine if there was no God incarnating in human flesh, entering human history. Imagine if there was no forgiveness of sin. Imagine if there was no resurrection of the dead. Imagine if there was no ultimate day where every wrong would be made right, where full justice would be executed, where all darkness would be brought to light. Imagine that. Imagine that there would not be a future kingdom, future full healing, future full justice. The only thing worse than us walking through what we walk through this side of heaven is not believing that there is a Jesus and there is a king with a kingdom who will ultimately return and wipe every tear from our eyes and write every and reconcile every relationship and execute perfect justice. If we don't have that, friends, our load is too great to bear. Man, those of you who have suffered well, those of you who have gone through pain and heartache, those of you who have experienced losses, by the way, I'm in that with you. It's okay. We don't know each other's stories. But man, you long for that day differently than the brother or sister who has maybe had a different path. So, so, so imagine, right? That's what James is saying. Your load would always be too heavy. Your load would always be too much. Where's the release valve for you? Where's the lightning rod for you? When you feel like there's just no escape and you're suffocating in a straitjacket of just trial and suffering. And, no, no, it's, it's, it, that day's coming. Jesus came, lived, died, rose to free us from the very pangs of life. The fracture and folly that exists with sin and evil and injustice. And we cry out for it, right? We, we cry out for it as the church. God move, God work, God use us. But ultimately in his providence and sovereign authority, praise God, we know we pray from a place of victory already. So when you pray, you're praying from a place where he's already won. He's already written the script. We've already read it. That Jesus will return for us. So then he's going to show us, though, be careful because 
Now in the community of faith, uh, your trials are going to lead you to be impatient, and then you're going to be impatient with each other. Verse 9. So don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Um, How many of you guys find, could just be me, uh, as your burdens increase, your patience decreases? (laughs) Right? Yeah. I know it's really behind that. As, you're, as you get overwhelmed and stressed and anxious, and do you not totally fly off the handle? Do you not f- totally have weak moments where you start grumbling and complaining? Man, as you get overwhelmed with life, as suffering builds, is it not natural to grumble and to, and to complain and to, and to bend that onto others and become very impatient with others? So naturally what happens is uh, suffering people become very selfish people. I'm with you, right? I mean, all of a sudden what happens? The universe, instead of the sun being the center by which all planets orbit, you become the center by which everything orbits. And so it becomes, hey, pay attention to me. Come to me. Serve me. Make much of me. I need help. Help me. And you're very impatient with those who don't because you're the center of the solar system. Right? And James is going, hold on a second, when did you become the center? I mean, maybe there are people around you who are suffering just like you. Maybe there are people who need patience to walk with, just like you need patience to walk with. Maybe this, this, this suffering you're going through, maybe you just need to be honest in conversation. Say, hey, I'm sorry about my response. I'm going through something that has nothing to do with you. But man, I'm just, I'm really injured. I'm going through a lot of pain. Could you just pray for me? Walk with me? I'm sorry for my shortness. Sorry for my temper. Sorry. I mean, is this not true? How, because, man, James is concerned with the community of faith. He's concerned about the life of the church, how these realities affect all of us. There are places in Scripture, you'll see this grumbling. I mean, one of the most obvious ones, if, if you know your Scriptures at all, you're going right to the, to the Israelites, right? And the promising, they just grumble, grumble, grumble. And, I mean, it's so much so where they're like, man, we want a leader. Gave us Moses, he stutters and murders people. We don't want him. You give us manna from heaven, I'm gluten-free. Like, why, why, are you, why are you giving me this stuff? Why, why, are you, why are you providing this way? Why are you doing this? I don't like this. Grumble, 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 grumble. No matter what God does, no matter how God works, it's just complaining, 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 complaining. Here he's showing there's grumbling not just at God, which we do. There's grumbling against one another. And he says the danger is it's a cancer to the community of faith. It shrivels the community of faith. You ever been around people that just grumble, complain? He's saying, I care about the larger family. It's like dad or mom comes home from a long day at work, and they've had a hard day. Who does that affect? The family, right? The whole family. If two people have a, have a fight or a little thing like in a family, everyone starts hearing about it. It just starts to impact everybody, right? The whole family. This is what James is saying. James is showing us that in the same way it can impact everyone. And listen, if I could just pastor us, encourage us just for a moment in the particular season we're in, is this there not a better word for us? Listen, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, some of us, man, you, you planted with us when we were 18 people a couple years ago. You're looking at 400 now and you're going, man, I liked it when it was just 18. I liked it when it was just 50. Who are all these new people? They shouldn't be here. Now I'm not the center of the universe anymore. I don't get all the attention. I don't get all the phone calls. I don't. And instead of being gracious, instead of being grateful, we grumble. 
Not, wow, look how God's at work. Look how God is adding to our number. Look how God is saving and transforming people. Look how God is bringing people to sit under the word every single week in a place that desperately needs it. We just have this understanding and we grumble. And you're saying, that's a cancer of the community. We've got enough grumblers. If you're on a ministry team and you start grumbling, that's a cancer to your team. It just starts permeating that whole team. Are we grateful or do we grumble? What is our posture? This is what he's showing us. Um, and that's also just where I need us to understand as a church, man, we are, we are a young church. I know some of us, you're newer, and you're going, man, why don't you have 17 ministries and 1,800 staff and this and that? I'm going, man, I don't know. We're, we're just building the play in the air. I mean, we're, we're, you've got to be patient. Let's rejoice at what God's doing. Let's ask God for grace and help. We didn't plan on what he's doing. He's just doing what he's doing. So let's walk together unified, praying, bearing with, right? What is your heart? Our sinful bent, listen, in the community of faith, and it's only going to continue to happen if we do not consistently lean into the gospel of grace and ask for help, is that we are so much more quick to spot people's weaknesses and see where God's at work. That's just natural, right? Man, you just stink there. You stink there. You're a terrible leader there. Instead of, man, here's where God's at work. Here's where I see him growing you. Here, you know how different that is to a flourishing community of faith? You know what difference it is to, to have gratitude like that, not grumble like that? It's often that we'll talk about people's worst day and never their best day, right? What if you talk more about people's best day? When you saw them thriving, when you saw them faithful. This is what James is getting. He's encouraging us to be very, very careful as the cares of the world weigh down on us, the pastors and elders and, and, and saints and brothers and sisters, as, as the cares of this world, be so careful because you're gonna be quick to be impatient, right? I mean, listen, I know this so well. I mean, there, there are things throughout the week, man, I get ready to preach and I'm, I'm just like, an email flies in and I just wanna write back impatiently and it's, I'll be patient, Think, pray, process, right? Now, we need help from God in this. This is a good word from James. I mean, this circles back to chapter three, right? How do you speak to one another? You, you know you can set people on fire by your words? He's just repeating something that he's already said, and that's why he gives a powerful yet simple reminder. By the way, the judge is at the door, and he's seeing all this. Uh, God, your judge, the God who has showed you unlimited patience, and suffered for your suffering, to ultimately redeem your suffering by his own. Uh, you know he's watching all this? You know he's watching you grumble? Okay, has God ever grumbled with you? Has God ever said, hey, does he do contracts? Hey, I'll love you, I'll forgive you, I'll save you, I'll welcome you in, and then, oh, screwed up, oh, he offended me, oh, he rebelled, I'm losing him, moving on to somebody else. Has he ever done that? So he's showing us this tremendous truth. The true judge, the one who will judge all of us, right, at the, at the throne, right, and you go to 1 Corinthians 3, yes, you are judged in your salvation through Jesus Christ alone, but you are judged through our actions, good or bad, at the judgment seat. He will judge us on our grumbling and gratitude. And he shows us that the very one who people will never sin against you like you've sinned against me, I'm saying this, and you can't be patient, you can't be gracious. That's a sobering word for us. Praise God, he doesn't throw the towel in on us. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a sinner, you're keenly aware of that. 
right? Man, I can't believe he still forgives me today. I can't believe he's still walking me today. I can't believe, I'm such a moron. I'm such a train wreck. I, I stumbled yesterday. I can't believe his grace is still there for me. I can't believe he's still patient with Mike Reed. I can't believe it. I mean, how poorly I've done things and how arrogantly I've acted and that he's still patient with Mike Reed? That it's unwavering? And as soon as we forget that, impatience spews out because we immediately forget the grace and patience that our judge has given us and he sees all of this. And then it's amazing. He's, he's showing us here, hey, we're all works in progress. You don't have it all together. You're not perfect, so be patient with brothers and sisters. Then he gives us an example of how merciful God is. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James goes, okay, listen, in your suffering, in your trial, just, just look at the laundry list. Check out the prophets. And how they remain steadfast. You can go to Hebrews 11 and read insane things that happened to those before us. But if you go to the Old Testament alone, you can see over and over and over again examples. I mean, David being hunted by Saul. Ezekiel losing his wife through ministry. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You got John the Baptist, New Testament, ultimately imprisoned and beheaded. Daniel taken from his homeland and thrown in a den of lions. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. Yet their hope was in God. And he uses Job as an example. Now, this is so specific by James. Listen, he could have picked anybody. And, and we got a Bible full of people who have suffered well and are in glory. But man, no one holds a candlestick to Job, right? We all know, oh, Job. Right? As soon as we think we've suffered, we open up Job and we're like, okay, he has me beat, right? I mean, every time. So, so he gives you Job. Okay, let's take this example of Job, right? Consider the steadfastness of Job. And, and Job, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, he loved the Lord, served the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. He is wealthy. He is relatively healthy. He has tons of animals. Animals were, were just the ways that you had money. It was unlimited, his livestock. And then we get kind of this, this background look into the accuser, the devil, walking into the throne room, and he sees Job worshiping. He doesn't like it, and he says, uh, hey, God, I don't like that he worship, he's worshiping you. Let's just take all his wealth. I bet he'll abandon you if I do that. And so God says, okay, just remember you're on a leash. By the way, in case you know that, the devil's just God's dog. He can't, he's got more authority than God. So don't, don't believe culture, and oh, I don't know if the enemy's going to win. He already lost. Okay, God stomps him, and he's going to crush him fully. Colossians 1 said he made him a public spectacle and stripped him naked. Okay, that, that's awesome. Okay, so listen, devil doesn't have any power over Christ. Okay, so anytime he's asking questions, he's not saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm having authority here. God's the one allowing that. So here God says, okay, do that. Just, just keep his life. And so he loses all of his children. He loses all of his wealth. Livestock killed, and he's walking, and the enemy's walking going, wait, he's still singing. Boy, so he goes back in the throne. Wait, Job's still worshiping. That's annoying. Okay, take his, I bet, if, I bet if he wasn't healthy, then all of a sudden he'd abandon you and he'd stop worshiping you. And what happens? Uh, he says, okay, just you can't take his full life. And so he gets boils from head to toe. There are clay pots. These fragments of clay pots starts scraping his boils. They're so bad. Just awful. And what happens, right? His wife shows up and his wife says, hey, just curse God, then ask him to kill you. Thanks, suitable helper. I mean, that, that's, 
Like that's not incur- how, how in the world is that helpful? Then you've got his friends that are just, just stupid. They're, they're these ministry guys with, or these uh, theology guys, seminary guys with no ministry experience. Right? They, they all show up with bad theological counsel. Like, Carmel, you must be bad, Joe, because bad things happen to bad people. Really? Really? So, so the best person to live, Jesus, pretty bad things happen to him. How did karma work out for Jesus, the son of God? And, and, but he says he's an example for us. Now, there's a hundred probably different ways you could see this. For me, this, this helped me in a particular area. Because as I, as I read that book, Job, if you've read that book, um, there's places where, man, he just starts, he's upset. He's mourning, he's angry, he's frustrating, he's trying to make sense of it all. What does God do? God reams him out. I mean, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I created everything? You think you have authority? You think you're God? You think you have this whole thing figured out? So I'm just sitting there going, man, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I've failed the test so much. I feel like there have been moments where in my suffering, and yes, loss, suicide, other things. I, I've, I've felt those weak moments. I've been angry. I've been bitter. I've, I've said things where I'm questioning his grace and his mercy. And, and there are times, right, in our life, maybe some of you guys, you're still holding on to guilt from those moments where you feel like, I didn't, I didn't perform well in that. Man, I should have performed better. I should have been more patient in that. And, and here he's showing us, though, that he's a good example. So why is Job a good example? Because ultimately, at the end, it says that he blessed Job, and he returned all that he needed. So why is he blessed? Why is he a picture of a good example? Brothers and sisters, I believe the Lord wants us to know and hear very clearly that patience in suffering doesn't mean you never sin in the process. Like, it doesn't mean you never have a weak moment or a dark night. Because ultimately, it's all about God's faithfulness to you, not your faithfulness to him. That's why he says how merciful and compassionate is God. That even through Job's stumbling and bumbling, he still says, hey, no, despite you, I'll bless you. Despite you still not submitting to me, still not giving me glory and understanding fully who I am and what I have every right to do, I will still show you mercy and compassion and patience. Profound. It ultimately doesn't depend on our faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to us, and that's why he's a great example of steadfastness that he did not deny God and run from God, but took all his questions to God. That's faith. It's bringing it to him. God, this is how I feel. You see this in the Psalms. I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you've left me. I feel like I'm alone. I feel like this is too much to bear. Can you, can you remind me of who you are? Faith is taking those things to the sovereign one and letting him speak to you and minister to you in those moments. And that's why Job is a great example of this. That, that's why, man, our... Our impatience fundamentally can lead us to a fundamental wrong understanding of God and his gospel. And we see it all the time in church life, right? Um, Because I believe in the suburbs, especially Burden County, New York City, metro area, man, we are trained to believe that the universe should exalt us. And we are are trained to believe that you should be able to ease in where you want to ease in. Everyone should be waiting to rub your feet and give you a latte. I mean, it's, it's like we are just made and programmed to believe 
that the universe exists to serve us and make much of us and keep us safe and keep us healthy and keep us wealthy and you know, some good stock in the meantime. That, that's how we think. And the problem is, is this all bleeds into our relationship with God. And so what we want is not covenant like we see with Job, like we see with him demonstrating to us through the book of James. We want contracts, right? We want to set up shop. You hear the gospel, hear that Jesus died for sin, Jesus lived, Jesus rose, and you say, okay, that sounds good. So, okay, Jesus, tell me within reason what you want me to do. Okay, and then, and then you know, I'll decide, you know, how I'll respond to that. I'll represent you well, okay, but then for me representing you well, here's what you do, and you put a clause in the bottom in small writing, right, a disclaimer, anytime you don't follow through on this, then I will get bitter and resentful and I'll just bail on you. And that's why I said, I mean, fundamentally why we see so many people leave the Christian faith, leave the church, is because of bad teaching, bad doctrine. You don't understand God, his Father's heart. You don't understand all of what we've been learning in James, that he is for you, not against you, that he's refining you, that he's creating depth, that there's a future home coming, that God is still good to all of his promises, that his promise has always been that he is for himself, and being for himself, he is most generously for you because he knows when you're caught up in that, you will be most satisfied. You will have most joy. You will have most rest because you're trusting not in what you think should be, but what he has said should be because he is ruling and reigning as the author and authority as God, and he will always be there. And so, man, we just sit in that good place. But what happens is I see people bail all the time. You want to know why? Because it's always, how dare God? Because you never believed the gospel, never believed the good news of Jesus. You were believing in something that you were making up. You took God's covenant gospel and made it into a contract and ratified it differently. And I'm saying you are being saved as something that is not the gospel of grace. Gospel of grace is despite you, he'll still be good. He'll still be God. He'll still be in control. He'll still love. He'll still forgive. He'll still be merciful. He'll still pursue. He's the one who initiated. God does not do contracts. He only does covenants. And a covenant is something solely based upon the one who makes the covenant. It has nothing to do with you. You're the recipient showered with grace in a covenant where even Job, a righteous man, had weak moments and God still said, no, I'm going to be compassionate. I'll be gracious. In your impatience, I'll still be patient with you. How dare we become impatient with others? Lord, help us. Lord, help us in that. And then covenant is so good, friends, because it allows you to approach the throne of grace with confidence. It it allows you in weak moments, it allows you when you sin to to come forth in in glad repentance to say, yeah, no, I'm grieved by that, and God knows your heart. I know you were grieved by that. I know you don't desire to do that. And that's why, man, remember that this relationship is fundamentally set on my covenant towards you, not your performance, not your works, not your merits, not your rights. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace. That's why it's so important to see Jesus through the book of James. I've been saying that because James is a book that will crush you if you don't see the gospel behind it, if you don't see Jesus behind it. That's the whole good news of all of this. And God's reminding us that he blesses us despite us. Verse 12, he's gonna have a roundabout way of closing this up, mentioning impatience again. And mentioning God's kindness in the community of faith, he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. See, when you're saved by Jesus, you begin to act like Jesus. I know that's crazy, 
First John tells you, um, if you love him, you will walk as Jesus walked. So, so he's bringing about, again, this evidence of your true faith, your genuine faith. And he's not saying never have weak, weak moments. He's not saying that, that you ever make mistakes. But he's showing here how he circles back with this warning of their grumbling and encouraging their patience in another way. He knows they're well aware of the Old Testament where you would make oaths to confirm prohibitions and rules and laws. And if you remember back in chapter 1 or chapter 2, he says, hey, it's no longer that law. Jesus fulfilled that law. We're under the law of liberty, the law of love. Love your neighbor. So as you interact as the community of faith here, um, a good way is don't let your impatience and trials make you say things that you have to come back on. We don't need oaths to show the integrity of our truthfulness anymore as the children of God. If we say we're going to do something, we'll do it. If we can't do it, we can't do it. And this is so practical in shepherding. I mean, maybe you're just, I'm sorry, my, 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 my calendar's too full. My, I'm just, I'm underwater. I'm sorry I can't meet that need right now. I mean, how much patience is needed when we want to meet with someone or someone to meet with us and they can't or something comes up, or there's a cancellation or say, man, just try to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Know that, know that there are going to be reasons that you can't do things and you can do things. And he says, this is actually, if you go to like Ephesians 4.25, he says, the ways that you're honest and don't speak falsehood among the community, it's actually a light to others to see the goodness and integrity of God. So as they see your patience working itself out with even how you agree with each other and disagree with each other, how you even walk with each other and shepherd one another, it's a testimony of who God is. It's a testimony that faith has taken root in your heart. You don't need to swear by God. That's his, that's his area. God alone perfectly says yes and no. Aren't you so glad for that? That Jesus, when he says yes to you, he never says no again? I mean, isn't it that he's not like us? Where when he says, I will forgive you, I will save you, I will love you, you will belong to me, he never says, oh, well, that was a bad day, bad Monday, so you're out of the fold. Never says no after he says yes. He always keeps his word perfectly. And so he's showing us when we lie, when we say things and then take them back, we're actually showing that we follow the father of lies and not the father of truth. Father of lies, the devil, not the father of truth, Jesus. Saying this is a powerful witness. Man, when we're stressed and we're burdened, when we're under trials, be careful the promises you make. That's what he's saying. Be careful what you say you can do and will do for others. I'm guilty of this. I've said many times, yeah, let's do this. I'll do this, and I haven't. I didn't realize that I just was not in a position to be able to. So we have to be watchful of that. God's compassionate and merciful. He does covenant, not contracts. And just as we love the steadfastness of Jesus, we need the steadfastness for our own. Let me just end with a question. Um, man, how's your patience? And not just worldly, not morally. I mean, your deep-rooted patience. Where, where do you fundamentally build off of patience for you? Just that you're going to try harder today? Or can you see that God has been so patient? Can you pick out those moments this week, even maybe this morning, where God still is unwavering in his covenant? And he says, no, I'm, I'm patient with you. My love is enduring. My steadfastness is enduring. No one's like me. Others will fail you. I will never fail you. I still love you. I'm still for you. I'm still with you. Some of us need to be reminded of the good gospel of grace this morning. How's your heart? Are you a grumbler? If people are around you, what would they say about you? 
Yeah, they just grumble a lot. I hear more about, I, I hardly hear why they're grateful or how they're trying to build up this church. I more hear about what they're annoyed by. And if that's you, I would consider you to just do some heart work, do some soul work. Ask the Lord to, to reveal why that is and where you might be off, where the gospel might not be healing you the way it should. Because God cares about his bride. He cares about the unity. He cares about the harmony. He cares about the togetherness. Are you patient or impatient? How's your honesty? Your yes and no. Like, do you just flippantly say things? Or do you mean what you say? That's evidence that faith has transformed you. Let's ask God to do that now. Father, I, I pray that now you would give us help. An interesting text, a little bit complex, but Father, we see there are benefits to patience. Patience rooted in the gospel. Patience rooted in Jesus, slaughtered for us, rising from death, reigning victorious. God, apparently you say that your return should bring about patience and help us be patient in our hardship and trial. I pray if that is a place that needs to minister most prevailingly to some in this room, that you would help the return of Jesus minister deeply to them in the suffering they're walking in. Father, would you help us protect, be protected as a community of faith in our impatience with one another, Father? Help forest fires never to be started if they can be resolved. Father, would you make us so much more aware of our weaknesses and the ways you've been patient with us than the weaknesses of others and the ways that we are impatient with them. Father, remind us of the prophets. Remind us of Job, that through tremendous suffering, even he had weak moments, and yet your faithfulness to him is what we need to see. That God, you're good. God, you're patient. You say in Romans 2, you're so patient, you thought that is what would lead us to repentance. So Father, might none abuse your patience this morning? Might none who are in unrepentant sin think that, well, God will just keep be patient, being patient with me? Romans 6 makes clear that we don't just abuse grace and we've been given grace. Oh God, would you protect any, anyone from feeling like they have license to sin? but that grace might move us towards holier lives, more full lives of you. Help our yes to be yes and our no to be no so that we might not fall into condemnation, into judgment, Lord, being judged for the ways that we use our mouths and the ways that we interact with one another. May we be nourished with the saving benefits of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.